It's astounding that we can offer you our lives, Lord. But we can do so because you have offered the life of your son for us. And as a father who loves his son, and we as parents who have learned something of your heart in that, it is a tremendous thing that you've offered your very life for us. And we do turn back to you then to a father. We turn back to you to a great king. You're certainly creator. But we owe you everything. And part of the great deal you've made is that you would give your life for us if we would give you our lives. And so we want to come and we want to take that deal again this morning. We want to take it and again let go with our fingers of the grip we have upon our own lives. And I don't know why we clench so hard, but we do. We thank you that you pry our fingers off of our own lives so that we can offer them to you with open hands to let go of who we are in your presence that you might bring to us fullness of life and restore what has been broken and lost. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. You can turn to Luke chapter 2, page 857 in your pew Bible, Luke chapter 2, 857. We've had our Advent conspiracy and we have conspired and committed ourselves to intentionally do Christmas different, but now we enter the Advent season, and what we're going to do for the next four weeks as we enter Advent is look at Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, and the angel's proclamation of good news. And we're going to look at that story and flesh it out for your life and for my life and for our lives together, and Pastor Scott will teach next week, and we're going to do it through four characters. Today, we're going to look at the life of Joseph and, and the good news as it came to Joseph, And then we'll look at Mary and the good news that uniquely came to Mary's heart and life and what was going on. And then we'll talk about the shepherds and then the magi. Let me read with you just a moment Luke chapter 2 because then we're going to go back to Matthew 1 and look at Joseph in particular. But here's here's our Advent series for four weeks. Luke chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 8 and just tell this story and get us in the scene just for a moment. And in the same region which is Bethlehem, uh, just outside of Jerusalem, Mary, of course, had and Joseph had come up, and they'd been called for a, a census to come and register, and and so they traveled there, and she <clears throat> goes into labor, and of course has a, their first child there. But in the same region, there are shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. This was uh, they were doing business. There was all the census activity caused there to be people who would come to Jerusalem, and a part of the Jewish tradition was that. Uh, annually they needed to go to the temple and make sacrifices. And so they would have a, a once-a-year trip up, up the mountain to Jerusalem. And, and so if there was a census, they may as well also take this opportunity to offer their sacrifices. And so when that was the case, then the shepherds come in because there's a lot of product to move, right? And so they have the sheep in their flocks, and it's nighttime. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. There's always the response to angels in the scriptures. Great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, 
is the word look. Look, I have something I want your attention. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That's our key verse here. I bring you good news of great joy. Now, in your translations, and some of you have some different translations, I bring you good news. That's all one word in the original. It's simply this, I evangelize you. That's how we would say it, transliterate it. Or I gospel you. I good news you, we could say. It's all one verb. I bring you good news and then of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There's the reason for the great joy. There's a Savior born, Christ the Lord. So what we want to explore today then is how is this good news for Joseph? And by doing so, we want to ask then, how is it good news for us? What is it that is good news of great joy for all the people? All the people in this context meant, of course, the Israelites that were gathered in the land at that time. But we know from the later storytelling and development of the New Testament that that began to include you and I. Most of us here would be Gentiles, outside the original people of God of the covenanted nation of Israel, born from Abraham. That's not us, but this offer of being part of the people of God expanded into where those who believe are now children, it says, of Abraham, grafted into this exclusive people of God. So all the people includes Joseph, which is for you and I. Now, I want to ask you to turn back to Matthew chapter 1, because we want to look at Joseph there. We want to look at Joseph, Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 18 and just read a portion of this. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and that culture, to be engaged, was also to be legally married. Though they hadn't come together, they hadn't had the wedding yet, There hadn't been union. Nevertheless, legally, they were bound. And so they were engaged, betrothed. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, that's a problem, especially from Joseph's perspective. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So we can imagine the conversation. Joseph, I've got something I have to tell you. You may want to sit down for this, but I'm pregnant and I haven't been unfaithful to you. Now, those two sentences don't really go together. And so Joseph, struggling to know what to do, decides that he is going to follow the provision of the law for an unfaithful wife. I know she said this, Mary, I know you said this, and I think we're going to see in a moment that some part of his heart believed her. But the evidence is staring us both in the face. And so the provision was to be able to divorce. And yet, out of care and kindness, he does so in a way not to embarrass her. His heart is for her, and he resolves to do it quietly. Verse 20, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear To take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Joseph, for he will save his people from their sins. So we'll get to that in just a moment. Do not fear fear to take her as your wife. The first thing, though, we want to talk about is this. 
Joseph, we want to talk about spiritual mapping. You and I are Joseph. When we come to the scriptures, because this is not just the history of the Peloponnesian War, it's not just an ancient book that tells about ancient times. This is actually claims to be a word written from God through human people. And as such, it is a living word and active and alive. And so when we read it, we have to learn to place ourselves under its storyline, to place ourselves within its parameters of teaching and instruction for us. Because God has come and said, there was a way you were going that seemed right to you, but I have to tell you that way led to death. And we are stunned and surprised and says, really? Because I thought it made a lot of sense. And he says, no, let me show you the way of life. And so through the span of thousands of years, through different prophets and through the nation of Israel, through different people who lived their life before God, he charted out a path of his interactions with mankind, attempting and showing and shocking to them of how to get on the way that he originally intended for them. And so we learn the skill of placing ourselves in the story, spiritual mapping. You layer over your heart the storylines of Scripture. And in this case, what we're going to do is we're going to lay over our hearts Joseph, that we are Joseph. We'll do it with Mary, we'll do it with the shepherds, and we'll do it with the Magi. There is a Joseph heart in each one of us. Now, what does that mean? What is a Joseph heart? The first thing is this, just and obedient. We need to recognize that Joseph comes across in this story as a good character, a good man. He is torn by the circumstances facing him, but he wants to do what is right, and he does. And in fact, when the angel comes and speaks to him and moves him along another way, he follows that willingly. He obeys, just and obedient. This is not... The idea that is found in the scriptures about the Pharisees. The Pharisees are those people who were so just, so righteous, so religious that they had begun to plod themselves in such a way that their efforts to be religious and righteous was their golden ticket to heaven. And the scriptures unanimously say this is a twist of what God originally intended. He didn't give the Ten Commandments. He didn't give his righteous paths of life in order that if you walk them, you might curry favor with God. Rather, he gave them as a result of already delivering the people of Egypt, out of Egypt, out of bondage. So he says, I am the Lord your God who delivered you from bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not steal. And he lists commandments. He lists ceremonial and political commandments that died with this nation politically of Israel. But it was all as a result of his deliverance of them from Egypt. And so when we come to Joseph, that's what's being reflected here. Just like in your life, you know that being rescued from God does not come because of your good works. You've been told that, you've learned that, you wouldn't be in a Christian church unless you hadn't heard that at some point. But with Joseph, you are responding to God's grace and deliverance by seeking to be obedient, by seeking to be just, kind and caring in difficult things. And yet this is a difficult thing to do. We find it in Joseph, we'll note it in just a moment, but let me just point out Saul and Paul himself, Saul who became Paul. Paul writes, when he writes about his Jewish countrymen, he says, this is what I would bear witness to, that they have a zeal for God, 
but not according to knowledge. It's something is off and wrong about it. And here's the unique phrase. He says this, seeking to establish, that's the word in your own, establish their own righteousness. They did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God, which is found in Christ. Seeking to establish their own righteousness. So Paul is saying this, this, this has happened to my countrymen. Some of them have been excessive and strong, and they we call Pharisees. Others have been less so, but seeking to use obedience and goodness. If we were to subtitle this message today, we would say the good news for the well-behaved. The good news for the well-behaved. How do you receive good news from God when you are a person already trying to walk in his ways? Paul says that they sought to establish own righteousness. This is a mistake. But then he goes on in another place, Philippians 3, and talks about his own life. He says, listen, I had as much establishing of righteousness as any of my fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. In fact, I had more than many of them. I was born out of Benjamin, a favored tribe. I was circumcised on the eighth day. My parents did right. As to the law, I was in perfect conformity to it. And and that wasn't really true. But that's what he thought about himself. A Pharisee of Pharisees, he says. But listen, I forsook all of this in order to gain Christ. And then not even so more than that. As a Christian, he says... As a Christian, I counted everything that I've accomplished or achieved as rubbish. Some of your translations, some of the older ones will say as dung. And that's actually a little closer to the original. The original uh, Greek word is a little bit of a potty mouth word here in, in Greek. It is meant to be a shocking word. Paul is saying, I am counting every effort that I have done, even as a Christian, every obedience and righteous thing, as dung, as garbage, as refuse, as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. And then he says this, and being found in him having a righteousness, not from myself, but one, and this unique phrase, that depends on faith. So even as a Christian, Paul is saying, I am fighting hard to not let my call to obedience and my call to goodness And my call to compassion and my call to justice, the call to be a good man and a good woman, faithful to God, I am working hard to follow that and then count it as nothing. Because if I don't, it's going to trip me up. And that's what we find here in Joseph as well. So he's a just and obedient person. But what happens What happens to the person who's striving to do right and to do good? They always come into difficult situations where it's just not clear what they should do. And here is this man betrothed. Here is this man engaged to this woman. And he wants to do right. And he's keeping himself pure. She's keeping herself pure. They're following God, waiting for Messiah. And she comes to him one day and says, I'm pregnant. He knows it's not him. And she says it's not anyone, it's God. Now, there's a lot of dog ate my homework excuses, but I doubt anybody ever has said before that I'm pregnant, my beloved betrothed, and it was God. And he listens to her, and a part of his heart, I believe, believed her. Because the angel comes and says, 
do not fear to take her as your wife. Why would he say that? Why would he say don't be afraid? If not, there was fear in his heart. I believe he did believe Mary, and yet he also has to believe the evidence right in front of him as well. And he doesn't know what to do. He should follow the right path and divorce her because she has committed a sin against God. But he also, I believe, is drawn to her and somehow mysteriously believes her story. And he's in conflict. And it causes fear. Those who would seek to do right, you and I, when we're drawn into gray areas, it can cause fear in our hearts. And when we become consumed with right Actions, we can sometimes forget good actions. Right and good are not always the same. Fear has crept into Joseph's heart. A fearful heart, then, is often an anxious heart. A fearful heart is often an anxious heart. I don't know what to do. I'm stressed out. I feel this is the right thing, but I also want to do this. I'm not sure what's right. God, would you please tell me? Uh, Neighbors, would you tell me? Church people, would you tell me? Coworkers, would somebody tell me the right thing to do so that I can just do it and not worry about this? And so the upright and good heart following God seeks to make a black and white so I don't have to make any difficult decisions. I don't have to labor hard to hear God. I don't have to entrust myself and the actions to it. You ever wonder why we get so frustrated with God? We get so frustrated with God. We get frustrated with God because a fearful heart often also is an angry heart. We have a gray area. And depending on your temperament, you may go to stress and indecision. You may also go to anger. Because you, you have a, a decision you have to make and this path seems right and that path seems right and you're not sure what to do. So you, you take a risk and it doesn't turn out quite the way you thought it was going to be. And unbeknownst to you, you have begun, like Joseph, to make a deal with God. You've begun to make a deal with God. The deal is this. If I am faithful to keep your commandments... That's maybe too hard because you can always think of a few commandments you break. But in general, or if I am faithful to read the scriptures, or if I am faithful to be a person of prayer. You want to know the real tough one? If I am faithful to raise my children in the way they should go, and then you discover they don't. Or some circumstance comes into your life, whether it may be tragedy or whether it may just be an affliction, and you think to yourself, I don't deserve this. You may never say those words. In fact, you probably can't say those words because that would betray the unspoken deal that you have. But your heart becomes angry. Your heart becomes fearful in the circumstances and turns to anger because it's saying to God, we had a deal. I did my best and you were going to protect me and watch out for me. And so when God brings a difficulty, an unexpected pregnancy, so to speak, with an unbelievable story, with this woman that you love, how can you believe it yet you want to believe it? And fear entered your heart and anger can follow in its pathway. Fear is often accompanied with anxiety. Fear is often leads to anger. But fear, a fearful heart is always an unbelieving heart. 
A fearful heart is always an unbelieving heart. The scriptures have been more than plain, more than clear. I will help you, says the Lord. I will strengthen you, says the Lord. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I will take you by the hand and I will lead you. I will bless you. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear for the Lord your God is with you. I know the plans I have for you, declared the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Why would God himself, who is omnibenevolent and loving, have to tell us he's not going to harm us, except that we think, based upon the evidence we see right in our face like a pregnancy, that he's out to get us. Jeremiah himself says, Oh God, I feel like you have trained your bow right on me and are shooting it in my liver. The scriptures are plain that how will he not with him, how will he not with Jesus also freely give you all good things? In fact, he says, Everything works together for good to those who love God and are called according to purposes. I will complete the work I began in you. I will forgive your sins, and though they be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though your heart is fretful, I will grant you peace. My peace I give to you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you peace, but I give you peace that your joy may be full. Let not your hearts be troubled, and yet they are. And yet they are. We struggle Because underneath our fears is really unbelief. God has made promises to us and we look at our circumstances in life. We look at the difficulties and we say, if I'm going to weigh these two, this one's staring me right in the face and this one will have my heart's obedience. While I would never say that out loud, that's what causes the fears to take life. That's what causes. So you and I are Joseph. Following God wanting to walk in his ways. And yet, when we enter that path, we enter a slippery path that can create fear in our heart, anxiety over difficulties, and developing our own righteousness. And so, the message comes, sent by God an angel. I bring you good news, Joseph. I bring you good news, Joseph, of great joy that is for you today. He's born today, Christ the Lord, a Savior. What is this great news? I want to call it a spiritual urgency that you learn to evangelize your Joseph heart. A spiritual urgency. The messenger was sent by God, the angel. He comes and he tells this story and we're trying to break free of the constraints of a story we've heard every single year. And we're trying to dip into it again with freshness and, and map over our lives the people to whom this message would come. The angel comes and it's to Joseph that he also says, this is good news for great joy. There's a spiritual urgency then to evangelize your Joseph heart. So the first thing we have to say is this. The gospel is for Christians. The good news is for Christians. The good news comes to Joseph. The good news comes to you and I. Romans chapter 1, Paul writes a letter. He writes a letter to the church at Rome. And in 1 verse 15, he says this. I am looking forward to coming and visiting with you. And I'm looking forward to preaching the gospel to you. 
He's not talking about Caesar's house. Old. He's not talking about the streets of Rome. He's not talking about Naples or Florence, Milan. He's talking about the church in Rome. He's looking forward to preach the gospel. But I thought they already believed. Well, they did. And he's looking forward to preaching the gospel to them again. Why? Because the gospel is for Christians. The gospel is for us not just to enter into the family of God, but to actually live by. It is food to feed our souls. It is not just birth, but it is the living and breathing of your everyday existence. You are to learn to preach to yourself the gospel, to evangelize yourself, to good news yourself like the angel did and brought to his people at that point. Paul writes to the Corinthians. He writes and he talks about being an ambassador. In fact, I think that's our next point here. Let's just go ahead and do it. You are authorized ambassadors. Paul writes and says this. You're an ambassador. But here's the point I want to make first. He says this. Be reconciled to God. Now he's writing to a church. He's writing to a group of people who had just said a few sentences or paragraphs earlier. I know what I believe about you. That you have been washed and cleansed and you are following God. I know there's some difficulties and you're fighting hard to them. But this is we believe in you. You are God's. And so then a few paragraphs later, he writes and says, I want you to be reconciled to God. I thought they were already reconciled to God. It's because this, the vision of the New Testament is that you would believe the gospel and enter into life and you would keep believing it all of your days for all of your troubles. That you would learn to speak the good news you first believed. Whenever that was, whether you were a child and you had very little understanding in life context or if you were an adult, whether you were a well-behaved adult like uh, Joseph, whether you had scandal in your life like Mary had, you were on the outside like the shepherds, or if you were a pagan intellectual like the Magi. It doesn't matter where you find yourselves. At some point you're here because you heard something that says, that's good news. I think I believe that. I want to commit myself to that. And what God is saying is this is the same thing you're to live by every day. The grace, it says, in which you now stand. Not just the grace by which you were once saved, but the grace in which you now stand, writes Paul. And so you then are authorized ambassadors. We think of those verses as being ambassadors as evangelism verses for your neighbors and for your unbelieving friends and family and whatnot. Perhaps a nation that has not heard God and so you go to be a missionary in the Philippines. It doesn't matter what the storyline is. But an ambassador is one sent with the authority of one country to represent its interests in another. And so we've used that verse and idea to say that we are called by God to represent his kingdom to our unbelieving neighbors. And that's true. But that actually isn't how Paul used it in 2 Corinthians 5. Well, after stating that exact thing, then he goes on and says, I want to say this to you, church, be reconciled to God. He uses his status as an ambassador to appeal to them who already believed. That's, that's kind of staggering. And here's what I want to say. You are called to be an ambassador to your own heart. You are called, oh man, To represent the kingdom of God to yourself. You are called to represent the kingdom of God to yourself. And God alone knows how often you need it. 
how often you are discouraged, how often you are weighted down with your sins, how often you are weighted down with the responsibility to do good, to love your neighbor. Shoot, to love your own family at the holidays, huh? How often the burdens, you see, we think about the burdens, the burdens that we carry as the sins to be forgiven, and that's true. But you know the far greater burden in the scripture is to do right, to do right, to learn to love, to learn to forgive, to learn to bless when others curse, to forsake anger and turn away from wrath. These are not easy things to do. These are far heavier burdens than even the sins and guilt that you have. And God knows that these press upon you. And in these times, as a believing child of God, you're calling the urgency of this angel coming as an ambassador from the throne of heaven is that you also are called to be an ambassador and speak the kingdom good news to your own soul. You speak to your own soul. And I want to tell you, the third point is this. There is a power in proclaiming the good news. We've heard about the power And we think about it in terms of evangelizing the lost. We prayed this last prayer season for Luis Palau. And we prayed for uh, Mike Silva and and the concerts they were having down in South America. And we believe and we pray that the power of God would be manifested in the declaring of a cross. Here's the message of the kingdom of heaven. That one has come to rescue you. A savior has been born. Christ, he is really the Lord. And we speak that, and yet the truth is, it is the same power. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God. It's that same good news that is supposed to come into your life with your unforgiveness. That is to come in your life with your manipulative self-centeredness. In your life, in the issue you just can't let go of. In your life and the decisions that are before you and you don't know what to do, it's gray and you're getting mad at God because you want it to be clear. In your life for the shame that keeps holding on and gripping you like an iron-fisted glove around your heart. Things that have happened to you, things that you've done and you don't want anybody to know. In fact, it keeps you away from church half the time. Because you just don't want people to know you wake up and you have a sense of dread that comes over you. And you'd rather just stay in bed. It are these things that are the opportunities to proclaim the good news. To evangelize yourself and your own heart. This is an urgency. It's something that God sent an angel to declare to the shepherds. For all the people, there's good news of great joy. And I'm here to stand as a messenger to tell you, you're called to do that to yourself. To preach first to your own heart good news. To push back the shadow of darkness that infiltrates your own life. Everybody will be taken through the valley of the shadow of death. Everybody will be taken through circumstances that are difficult. And it's your calling to preach good news to yourself. That you might have joy and light in the midst of those valleys. The power of proclamation. It may be. It may be at times. I have had to do this. At times you have to fight to the death it seems. To preach to yourself good news. Unbelief is so powerful. Discouragement is so powerful. Darkness. I can't see anything good. The doubts and the fears. 
the negative implications of everything I'm doing, the worst case scenario, or shoot, let's just say half the worst case scenario is so bad I don't even know what to do. And those things, by goodness, are preaching to you as powerfully as they can. And it's your calling to preach right back to your own soul and to proclaim good news. And at times, if you have to, to go into a quiet room, turn on the fan of that bathroom, or go to a nearby park and walk amongst the trees and lift up your voice and lift up your voice and speak out loud what is true. Speak out loud good news. You are a son of the most high. You are in the image of God. You are made and clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Your sins have been forgiven. And you begin to quote to yourself and preach to yourself. And you may have to get a little riled up even. Because it takes something to overcome the stubbornness of our hearts to believe. It takes something to overcome. Can you imagine interviewing for the job of being an ambassador for king, for Caesar? And you go out to the surrounding nations that have been conquered by this great lord, Caesar himself. And they've sent a region in. And he's going to go to the public square and he's going to lift up his voice. And he's going to say, and we would, hear ye, hear ye, he might say. See, I get to lift up my voice because I'm already in that frame of mind. But if I ask any one of you to lift up your voice, hear ye, hear ye, there may be an extrovert or two among you who would have no problem. But the rest of us would be a little intimidated in such a setting to lift up our voice so that every corner of the room is filled. Do you think that the job application said for extroverts only, come apply at Caesar's palace? I'm sure there were some extroverts, but I don't think so. I think what happens is that when Caesar hired individuals to go to countries, to go to nations, to go to cities, and go into the public square and lift up the voice and proclaim the decree of their new Lord that has conquered them, some of them were extroverted and they didn't have too much of a difficult. But for the rest of them, they had to learn that it wasn't about what people are thinking of me. It is about I have to be faithful to declare what the king has said is true. And that's your calling. That's your calling to your own soul first. You have it to others in your family, but it is to your own soul first. The power of proclaiming. I want to read to you the passage that's up there, Colossians 1. Him we proclaim, warning everyone And teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul's writing a letter to a church. He's writing a letter that church has its own particular needs. He's not standing in front of them like I am standing in front of you today. But he's writing to them and he stood before them at one point and he's writing. Him we proclaim. We're laboring to warn and to encourage each one of you. So that you may be mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Listen, before coming up here, before the first service, I say, Lord, this is, I I put this verse on the screen. This is what I am called to do today. I'm going to tell you a secret. After the first service, during the last song I sat down there, and my heart, I don't even want to say it, but I got to say it to you. I didn't want to believe a thing I just said. It's not easy. It's not easy. 
You and I have the places of fear that grip our hearts, the things of anger, the things of unforgiveness, the things of jealousy, the things of self-centeredness, the things of distraught and uncertainty. They grip every heart in this room. All of you that are well-behaved like Joseph, they still grip your heart. And God, by his angel, sent a messenger that said, I've got good news for you, for great joy. And I want to tell you, you've got to take that and run with it and learn to preach to yourself good news in whatever situation you find yourself in right now. It's a spiritual skill to learn. But then we have to ask this question, spiritual honesty, because it says it is good news of great joy. If we're going to dig down into the honest places of Scripture, we have to be honest that joy is a litmus test. Joy is a kind of test that tells if we're doing it or not. Preaching the gospel to yourself, I remember, oh man, got to make sure nobody will hear this that shouldn't hear this. I don't think, i got to say it in a way that will never be understood who I'm talking about. I heard an individual once, pastor of another church, so I'll say this, nobody in this room. I heard an individual once, after hearing somebody talk to them about preaching the gospel, said, here's how I preach the gospel myself. I read the Bible every day. That is not what's being said. It is in this book that you encounter Jesus who is this good news. But that's not what preaching the gospel is. It is not reading the Bible every day. Though that's a good and right thing to do. It is not praying every day. It is not trying really, really hard to be really, really loving and kind. That is not preaching the gospel to yourself. The truth is there's a hundred things you can do that are connected to this book and that are right and good things. You want to know how you know if you're preaching the gospel to yourself? You will find deliverance and joy. You will find that you have joy. Now, I got to say something really quick. This isn't just extroverted joy. This isn't just personality joy. I'm talking about something that invades the most introverted and shy individual that sits in these pews this morning. There is something that cannot be contained by the liberty that is found when you believe the good news. I have been fighting. I, I, I've known I'm going to preach a sermon. I've been fighting to get in the gospel myself and I had to say, Lord, I feel like there's this iron thing around my heart lately that doesn't want to be happy, that doesn't want to have joy, that wants to listen to every difficult and negative thing that's going on in my life and give it all of my two ears. I'm fighting to hear good news and to know when it's happened is joy. When you have a burden when you have a burden of distress, when you have a burden of a difficult decision, and you have these things waited, and all you can think about is those things, you will know when you experience the gospel because they will be lifted. They won't go away. They never go away. Once this one's done, another one comes. They never go away. But they do not oppress and weigh heavy upon your soul. Even so much so that Paul says this, I want you to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within you. I don't want you, as you encounter your brothers and sisters who actually die, I want you to be as those who face death with hope. 
there's probably not a greater thing that would cast the soul down more than death. And yet Paul says, but we can have hope in the midst of it. And that's stupendous. That's incredible. That is as absurd as a baby being a savior. To have hope in the midst of death. Paul expects joy. The gospels expect joy. The angel sent from God expects joy to be a part of this good news. And so I ask the question then. After hearing that the kingdom of God is the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, as much as we liked Thanksgiving, and we gave thanks for the blessing of God, that's not the kingdom of God. It is righteousness and peace, says, and joy in the Holy Spirit. As much as that is the case, then we have to ask the question, why are we so bored with God? Oh, I don't even want to ask this. Why are we so bored with God? I don't want to ask it of myself. We come to church. I remember talking to an individual recently, having a good conversation with them. They were able to talk about football. They were able to talk about their work. They were able to talk about some geopolitical issues in the world. But as soon as spiritual things came up, it was like this happened. They took a big step backwards. Got quiet. A two or three word reply. Because something... Something causes dullness in our hearts. I wonder to myself, why is joy so hard? Why is joy so hard? Why, in a sense then, and I've put this, obviously no one wants to say they're bored with God, but uh, I'm trying to pick words that are a little poke at us a a teeny bit. Why are we bored with God? Because that's fundamentally a lack of joy is this. I'm not going to believe this good news. I'm going to be consumed with the other things going on in my life. And I'm going to be satisfied that I went to church today. I'm going to be satisfied that I'm reading the Bible. I'm going to be satisfied that I said some prayers. I'm going to be satisfied that I was nice to my neighbor. I'm going to be satisfied when their dog is barking that I didn't go over holding a shotgun and ask if they need any help. (laughs) See how well I'm doing. And yet it is a lack of joy and the angel comes and I don't even really know that much of an answer. I've got some things written down here, but the truth is, you know what the truth is? This third point, I'm not even sure if I understand it. The angel comes and says, good news of great joy. Where's the great joy? Where's the great joy? Look up and down the aisles here. Where's the great joy? Where's the great joy? Where's the great joy? Let's not look at each other. Just look at yourself. Where's the great joy? If there's not great joy, here's the reality. Here's spiritual honesty. It's because you're not believing the gospel. That is the flat out honest truth. It doesn't mean you're not just and obedient. It doesn't mean you're not a child of King Jesus. But there's something that has stopped the work the way God intended it, and that is you preach the good news to yourself and you have liberty and joy. And instead, you have things that are like weights upon your soul and they're pulling you down. Why are we so bored with God? Joy comes through faith. I want to read to you 1 Peter chapter 5. First, excuse me, chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Page 1014, if you want to look at it along with me. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 5, he's been talking about here that God brought us into his kingdom and gave us new life to an inheritance that is 
kept in heaven for you. Who, he's talking about you and I, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed than the last time. Guarded through faith. Did you know that God is guarding you through the exercise of faith? When you exercise faith, that is believing the gospel, by the way. Faith. God is guarding you through the exercise of faith. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Various trials. That is not the passage we want to spend any time in. So that the tested genuineness of your faith and then he illustrates more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire. He's envisioning where gold is heated up and burned. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And verse 8, here's the kicker. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What does that taste like? Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's what Peter is saying you've experienced. And I want to ask you, is that what you're experiencing? It's what the angel intended when he came and said there's good news for great joy. I think the difficulty is this. This comes about by the testing of faith. And that's the thing you and I hate the most. We hate when God brings difficulties in our life. We end up concluding he doesn't love us. And the exact opposite is what's true. You've heard somebody say once, God will never bring you anything bigger than you can handle. And that's just a bunch of baloney. God brings you bigger things you can handle all the time, and he does it on purpose, precisely so that you can't handle it. He precisely seeks to turn up the heat to burn off the junk that is in your life connected to your faith so that you would be desperate for God and have nothing else you can turn to. Paul actually writes that on their travels, they said we had the sentence of death within us. And he says, so that it would not be us that we trusted in, but God who raises the dead. That's kind of funny, I think. He's saying we thought we were going to die and we thought, but we haven't done what God said. We think he's supposed to do something through us. So Lord, if you're going to kill us, It must be because you're going to raise us back to life to finish this calling you have for us. Now that's funny. It's not that funny, is it? That's how significant Paul is thinking that God brings a fiery trial in your life to purify your faith so that you have nowhere else to turn. You have nothing else that you can provide. You cannot love this person who is so mean to you. You cannot forgive this person who has sinned against you. You cannot let go of this anger by which you are driving your life and making your own accomplishments. You cannot let go of it. You cannot make sense of life without these things defining you. And God says, I will turn up heat and heat and heat to burn these things away so you have nothing and you call out to me even as my beloved child. 
so that you call upon me, so that you ask for me, so that you cling to me, so that when I come and say to you, I have good news, you say, finally, something good. God, far from giving you what you not want to give you, can't. he intentionally gives you more than you can handle. And I think we hate that. I think a trial comes and we get as far on the other side of the stage as we can from that trial and keep it over there. And yet, I think that we're also supposed to, in one sense, oh, count it all joy. What? Count it all joy. Because there is good news that the testing of your faith causes you to say your fingers that barely hold on to God, they grip more because you're desperate for him. I cannot lose you, God. There is good news for great joy. And when you experience that, then all of a sudden no trial goes away and yet everyone becomes less. They wait upon you less. Joy comes through faith. The dilemma then is that faith risks human favor. I've been meditating on this verse for a while now. You, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. How can you believe? Jesus is asking the people who are in his presence, how can you believe? How can you hear good news when you're so caught up in what everyone else thinks of you? That's what he says. There is something hard about believing the gospel. You have to proclaim to yourself and there's something risky about it. There's something about that even your own heart and mind says, this is foolishness. You can't be that happy. Nobody deserves to have that much joy. You can't be so peaceful. Don't you know what's happening in the world today? You can't walk with such certainty. Don't you understand the complexities of life? How can you be happy with what you've done? How can you have joy? Well, I'll tell you why. And it's the last thing, spiritual mapping, part two. You're Joseph, but you're also in Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come down because this is our last point and we're going to be brief about it as we transition into uh, singing. Singing is a hard thing. I don't know. Singing is sometimes not hard. Singing is sometimes really hard because the last thing you want to do is open up your heart in such a way to God. Spiritual mapping, placing yourself in the story, you are in Jesus. The angel comes and says, I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you today is born a Savior. You've believed in that Savior. You're connected to him. The first thing is this. In believing, you are linked to Jesus. In believing, you are so intimately linked to Jesus that it is as if you are the same. You are linked to Jesus. Well, what does that mean? In becoming a son with the son, in sonship, you have all that is God's. Taken from 2,000 years ago, inheritance laws that dominated the the world scene at the time but the oldest son inherited everything that was from the father there were some circumstances in which if there was many sons the oldest son would inherit half and then if there was 10 other brothers it would all be divided up between them but there was a prominence placed upon the oldest son to receive everything that was the father's 
when you are believing in Jesus and linked to Jesus, you got to preach this to yourself. In the Son, you have everything that's God's. You have all that is God's. There's not a good thing that He is not interested in giving to you. You say, but what about this awful thing going on right now? What if we didn't call it awful? What if we said in mystery, God is working it for good? And it's a gift that is more value and treasured than you can understand right now. All things you have, everything that God would justly give his own son are open to you. He gives to you. He gives to you. So significant, so significant is this that in Jesus, the last point here, you are part of God. Now, I gotta be careful in the way I say it because you're not some part of a mystic cosmic consciousness. God is separate and we're his creation. We're his creatures. We're not God in who we are as people. But, and yet this thing has happened that is mysterious beyond all measure. This good news has come and it brings itself with faith, great joy. And is this, when you are in Jesus, believing in him, you are part of God. Peter writes and says this, we have been given his, by his divine power, everything that is needed for life and God is through a knowledge of him, Jesus, who called us to his own glory, that we might become partakers of God. Partakers of God. There is a world that is offered to you, and in the end, it isn't even just the world of stuff that he's made, but it's him himself. So has he offered you good news. So are you charged to bring to your soul good news that he has offered you his own person, that you would be taken up and become part and participate in the divine nature. You would come and be connected to God himself through his son. It is a mystery that God has existed from all eternity. And there have been these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we don't even understand what it means except that it's spoken in this way. And then all of a sudden, he steps in and takes to himself a human body in this second person, Jesus. And that's mystery because he's added to his own being. But then behold what mystery it is. So much so that the angels, it says, long to look into it, to understand it, that he's come to you and he's drawn you up into the Godhead itself. Not yet tasted yet. Not yet experienced what that's going to be, but that's what is yours. The angel is sent then as a messenger to say, I've got good news for you. I've got good news for you. And here's the challenge then. We're going to sing a song into marvelous light. We're going to sing it as a close. It's our formal thing. We, We wouldn't be able to close our church service without it. But the great question is this. Will you be able to believe the gospel today? That you are called into marvelous light. Would you be able to sing it with faith? Can you let go of the things that grip your heart this morning? Can you? Do you dare believe that God has offered you tremendous good news. I want to invite you to stand. I want to invite you to sing with all of your heart. Sing with your mouth, believing.